make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Please be seated. And welcome to all of you as we continue Welcome Back Month and focus today on the many ministries and programs here at Ascension with hope that you will feel inspired and called and enticed to participate in a new way. Here in this parish, as in many churches, fall is the time when we think about stewardship, by which we mean how we use the gifts that God has given us. This community abounds in gifts, both monetary and otherwise. This morning, we will bless the lovely, generous handiwork that our Needlecraft Guild has made, and we'll send it on to keep some of our neighbors warm as the weather gets colder. Soon, we will also be reflecting on financial stewardship, which means both how God is involved with our money and how we respond to the financial needs of the church and the world. All of this is important indeed, but the gospel we heard this morning takes us to a whole different level of reflection. What is wealth for? Where does it come from? And what does it have to do with God? The manager of a rich man's estate is accused of defrauding his boss. Then he fiddles with the books some more in order to extricate himself with, from his difficulties. This is hardly an exemplary steward, but Jesus commends him. What's going on? At the outset, I should say that Miguel Escobar, who is the executive director of Episcopal Divinity School at Union Seminary, has just written a book about this parable. It's entitled The Unjust Steward, Wealth, Poverty, and the Church Today. My copy arrived in the middle of the past week, so I certainly haven't absorbed it all. But so far, it's wonderfully provocative and insightful. It deals not only with scripture and the contemporary church, it also lifts up the diverse voices that shaped theology around wealth and poverty for the first five centuries of the faith, with huge impact even to this day. So this sermon owes a great deal to Miguel's work, and I'm grateful. I commend the book to you. Among the first things I was reminded of as I was reading The Unjust Steward was the sharp inequality of the social and economic context of Jesus' ministry. In the Roman world, a tiny elite held the vast amount of wealth, while somewhere between 75 to 90 percent of the population lived just above, at, or below a subsistence level, barely making it. The ability to make a living from the land often made the difference between abject poverty and getting by. In Jesus' day, peasant farmers were increasingly forced to sell their farms because of high taxes or tithes, and they found themselves tenants on land they had previously owned, gobbled up into huge estates and paying gouging tribute to absentee landowners.
Once in this situation of dependence and debt, it was nearly impossible to get out. Interest was sometimes 50%, and should they default, both their property and their person could be forfeit, with debt slavery or imprisonment a likely outcome. Because the wealthy owners of these huge estates often lived elsewhere, it was important for them to have someone to manage their farms and their workers. The goal, of course, was to make as much profit as possible. Escobar tells us that the steward was often someone who had been born a slave in the master's household, who was now the first slave or maybe had been made a freedman in order to take on this role. He writes, stewards, therefore, occupied a precarious and much hated role in the hierarchy of the Roman estate. In the biblical account, the steward's authority depends on his ability to squeeze profits from the very people he has come from. In the story, the steward has done this, wielding enormous power, likely for decades. And then suddenly, the landowner accuses him of squandering his property. Having apparently wasted the master's money, the steward will lose his job. He will be thrown out with nothing. Frantically, he wonders what to do. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. The only resources he has are the accounts he still controls. He leaps into action. He calls his master's debtors one by one, and he changes the books. You owe a hundred bottles of olive oil? Well, make it fifty. A hundred containers of wheat? Quick, eighty for you. Biblical scholars note that these sums are enormous. They're more like the debt that a whole village would owe rather than an individual. To be forgiven of a sum like that is to have a whole new beginning. Forgiveness of debt is one of the major acts of liberation in scripture, a mark of the year of Jubilee, a sign that the oppressed are freed and that God is a liberator of the oppressed, just as God freed their ancestors from bondage in Egypt. The significance of such debt forgiveness echoes even in our own day. And then, remarkably, the landowner has a change of heart. I picture him shaking his head with a rueful smile as he praises the steward's quick-witted action. And then Jesus commends him not only for his practical shrewdness and his gumption, but for the use he has made of the owner's money. Make friends with, for yourself with dishonest wealth, says Jesus. This money was made out of exploitative labor and unjust debt. In repayment and repair, in generosity and forgiveness, and yes, in mutual need, maybe, a durable friendship can be forged. Certainly, the steward keeps looking out for his self-interest, but his understanding of self-interest has changed. It now includes the potential help and hospitality of the people he previously helped to exploit. He's had a change of heart and life, for sure, and just as surely, he's a work in progress, and we don't know how it will all end. 
Meanwhile, Jesus commends generosity even in unlikely and questionable circumstances. Maybe most of all, he commends the use of wealth to do justice and act with mercy, to bring healing and freedom and new life. It seems his priority is not a prudent management that makes the rich richer, nor drawing careful boundaries or keeping accounts. Rather, it's lavish generosity and profligate hospitality and jubilee forgiveness as a way of life. It is inviting everyone to the party. As Escobar notes, this parable is preceded by the story of the prodigal son, another squanderer, and followed by that of the rich man and Lazarus. On the one side, we hear about the father who is really the prodigal in the parable, prodigally generous, leaping, as our hymn says, to give and give and give again, not count the cost. And then in the next passage, which we'll hear next week, there will be a cautionary tale about a man whose great wealth so calcifies his ability to see or feel or act that he is literally unaware of a poor man who is desperate, starving, and oozing sores at his very gate. Maybe these three parables are a triptych about generosity and hoarding, foolishness and true wisdom, the right uses of wealth, and the question of who and how we serve. Of all the Gospels, it is in Luke that Jesus speaks the most about wealth. He talks about it all the time. Money is multifaceted. It can be a dangerous idol, an addiction that blinds and corrupts us and separates us from our sisters and brothers and shrinks our souls. It's a means of control. It's also a symbolic expression of our lives, our energies, our work, our priorities. Just look at your checkbook or your bank account if you wonder about that. Money is also a powerful tool. The story points us to the often corrupt or dishonest origins of wealth in exploitation and theft. It slyly suggests that wealth is meant to belong to the commons. It reveals the surprising healing power of money when it flows in a lively exchange out for generosity and healing and repair rather than in and in and in to be hoarded and compounded. In commending the steward, who is creative and generous with someone else's money, Jesus invites us to the frightening freedom of depending on God and caring for one another, to a vision of beloved community. Jesus summarizes, you cannot serve both God and wealth, but it seems you can serve God with money if you use it for God's purposes, not by striving to make ever more and more of it, but by giving generously, caring creatively and insightfully for people in need, healing, forgiving debt, making reparations, building systems of justice and equity and possibility. The steward expands his sense of self-interest to include mutual relationships and interdependence, 
as a far deeper security. Well, I confess that I do not always live this way. I like what I have. I'm grateful for it and I want to manage it well, and I also want to give it away, some of it. I have tremendous privilege and yes, compared to most of the world, I'm really rich. Does my position limit what I can see of the need around me? Undoubtedly it does. I pray to have my eyes and my heart opened. I also struggle with my responsibility, our responsibility, to care for the church as an institution. There is no question that we need money for maintenance and salaries and care of our buildings, for our ministries. But always Jesus brings us back to the question, what is it all for? Our wealth, monetary and otherwise, is for loving God and our neighbor with generosity and joy and boundless grace. Our institutions, our buildings, our daily infrastructure are to enable the work of love and justice, to care for and repair the world, even as we tend our own soul life and community. To be friends of Jesus and friends with one another and to offer a deep and genuine welcome to those who come to us. The story of the unjust steward teaches us that our job is to keep the wealth flowing in service of forgiveness of debt, healing of division, repair of injustice, fullness of life for all, and good news for the poor. It pushes us to interrogate the origins of our own wealth. Was there exploitation? Did we benefit from unjust systems? It makes us ask how much is enough and discern how dishonest money can be used for honest purposes of friendship and forgiveness. I have no definitive conclusion to these reflection, but these reflections, but they did bring a story to mind. And it's a story that's unfolding in real time, right in our own Diocese of New York. For many years, some visionary leaders have dreamed of creating a credit union here, a response to the huge economic inequity of our diocese, and specifically to the needs of the large number of people who cannot get any banking services at all. A credit union would offer resources from banking to low-interest loans to a way to cash your paycheck to financial counseling. And it would be answerable to the collective values of its members rather than having to seek profit for its shareholders. A credit union could be a game changer for many people who have been left out of the economic life of our communities. After years of work, fits and starts, progress and delays due to COVID and other things, the federal chartering of the Diocese of New York's credit union is almost complete. The campaign committee, of which I am a member, as is Miguel Escobar, is seeking a final $350,000 in pledges from across the diocese 
in order to raise the final capital required to be able to open. Ascension's vestry made a commitment to the credit union several years ago, and we'll be reviewing it at our meeting this week. It seems like such a wonderful opportunity to participate in creating a financial structure by which to love our neighbors and build a more just community, to make friends by means of unrighteous and even turning it to righteous wealth. Ask me about it if you would like to join personally. My friends, there are so many opportunities, both here at Ascension and beyond. How will you serve God and your neighbors with your wealth? Amen.